Are we ready? Do we have a thumbs up? Can we go? Or All right, let's get started. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Weber, and I'm a professor here in mechanical engineering and also deputy director of the Energy Institute. I'm the moderator of this excellent panel on what we've learned about renewables. Great to see such turnout in this sort of hidden room in the six-pack part of the historical part of, of campus. I'm just curious by a show of hands, has anybody ever taken a class in this room? Yeah, a couple of us, all right. So um, if you've made an F in this room, maybe raise your hand. Yeah, I saw one hand in the bag. I, I, I didn't get an F. I was just asking, asking for a friend. So uh, why would we talk about renewables? Well, it turns out Texas, as many of you know, has been a leader in renewable energy in a variety of ways for the last decade plus. And so we've learned a lot of lessons, good and bad, about renewable energy. We pulled together an excellent panel of people with different insights and different experience can share some of those lessons for us, not only to advise Texas moving forward about what we should do about renewable energy, but I think there are lessons learned here that are applicable to California and other regions of the world. I'll go through really quickly in the way the format works as each person will speak for a few minutes, introduce a little bit about themselves and their history and their insights and some of the lessons they think are relevant for us to learn. And then we'll have a pretty long Q&A session and I'll have some questions and we hope you'll have some questions as well. There are microphones for your questions and if those aren't working, I will repeat the question for the, the panel. Our first panelist, Paula Gold Williams, to my immediate left, is currently the president and CEO of CPS, is a major utility in San Antonio, and was recently appointed that position a few months ago. So a great honor for her and great for San Antonio, and it's great to have her on the panel. And she's got a long history in business and in the electric utility world. And Cheryl Mealy, the next speaker, is currently at ERCOT, where she's vice president and chief operating officer, where she started there in January. Before that, she was at Austin Energy for many years in executive leadership roles, engineer by background, also worked at General Electric. Next speaker, Greg Wortham here. Uh, he's our token male. He's the founder and executive director of the Texas Wind Energy Clearinghouse. And uh, I think an important thing is that from uh, 2007, for about seven years, he was mayor of Sweetwater. And it seemed like every week there was an article in the New York Times or some national or international publication about the wind boom in Texas, and he was quoted. He was sort of the go-to guy to explain what was going on on the ground with wind in West Texas. Our last speaker furthest left me is Mara Yates, currently at MP2. Long history in uh, public service utility uh, at, uh, in Arizona and also in the solar industry. A lot of insights, works with Department of Energy on codes and standards and things like that. So we've got some solar and some wind, some utility perspective, grid management, a lot of perspectives to learn from on the panel. And then we hope you'll be generating your questions while we're thinking, uh, while we're listening to them speak. So we'll start with Paula. Um, okay, so um, <clears throat> recently became the CEO. I'm, I am a financial person. I've been at the utility for 12 years, which is nothing in the energy business um, from the perspective of it's just a long-term um, entity that has grown um, globally. And for CPS Energy in particular, we've been around for 155 years. Um, and we've been owned by the city of San Antonio for 74 years. Um, the significance of that, though, is recently is in the 1970s, we were totally supplied in our energy generation from gas. And um, it's a long story, but basically um, <clears throat> the uh, supplier of our gas uh, basically tried to break the contract and reprice um, all of our, our source of, of, uh, of the commodity. But what we learned from that, um, we prevailed, what we learned from that is diversification is in fact the best asset for energy. Um, I would even say that if um, somebody told us that you, know, you should you know, totally all go solar, um, we, by the way we've learned through things, would say we'd never do 100% of anything. Um, even so, uh, we, we diversify, we really have, we, we have coal, we have clean, we have the cleanest scrubbers on our, our newest generation for coal. I know that's a whole nother discussion. 
Um, I just came back from a financial conference where carbon principals and investors were talking all about coal. But we have coal and nuclear and gas. Uh, we have over 1,000 megawatts of, um, of wind and a big support of wind for a very long time. And uh, we will have 500 megawatts of solar by the end of the year. That's amazing. And, um, and even the significance of that, what we really feel like it, is that we have to diversify the commodity and we have to diversify the approach to business. So what we really love about solar, it's, it's, a, it's a place where new businesses keep popping up. Um, we, in fact, have created an ecosystem where we have invited, particularly the solar um, value chain, we have um, Mission Solar and OCI, they supply the panels, we have trackers, we have inverters, um, we have con the construction entity that helps the, the farms get constructed, and um, we think utility-scale solar is a huge benefit relative to the value proposition. At the same time, we understand that we have customers that want to do it themselves, and so we've, we have over 50 megawatts of rebated solar already installed, and we are venturing into trying to reduce the, the cost proposition to investors. So it's not only the, the, the more affluent customers that can do it, but we have um, low-income uh, customers who are now venturing in rooftop leased products rel relative to solar, and we have community solar. We just think, again, that we just have to keep providing different ways for people to have an experience with energy and let them also be able to be able to afford it and diversify it all at the same time. And the last thing I'll say about that is we are also very much interested in energy storage because we think that that's going to help us really, really leverage the power even more so relative to renewables. That's great. Thank you. Cheryl. Great. I'm going to sit back and just talk from a higher level. I think that Paula did a great job explaining how the customer engagement in renewables and all of that. But I want to talk a little bit about the transitions that ERCOT has gone through. And for those in the room that might not know, ERCOT is the Electric Reliability Coordinator of Texas. And kind of I think this renewables um, story really starts when we looked back at ERCOT managing the wholesale energy market. And in 1999, post-1999, when we went live with that wholesale energy market, we had exactly zero megawatts of renewables tied to the grid. Um, so in that time period between uh, 1999 and today, we have over 17,000 megawatts of renewables in the electric grid that ERCOT manages. And so that's a pretty significant transition. And at points in time, we've actually had 50%, at one point in time, nearly 50% of the energy being supplied in that grid by ERCOT to ERCOT um, is where we were, something that I don't think we would have thought 16 years ago, 17 years ago was even possible. So I think that in itself is, is quite a testament to where ERCOT has gone. Um, and then in terms of the actual energy supply with the volume of renewables that we have in place in ERCOT, um, last year we were nearly 12% of our energy in total produced from wind resources. This year, year to date, we're approaching 15%. So we're continuing to see growth in this, and it's been this steady growth. Of, you know, if you look at that, it's almost 1% a year, right? Um, so what do we expect? We expect more of the same. We kind of see that this grid is going to continue to evolve and that we are going to have to learn to manage even greater amounts of renewable energy, and this is a variable type of resource, right? It's different than our traditional generators that we were used to managing. It's a variable type of production. And so we expect to continue to see that grow, which means we've got to continue to examine the market mechanisms and the reliability tools and the way that we manage that energy in the grid. Um, if we look at just the total transition of the entire 
uh, fleet of generators on the market. Since the opening of that market, we've seen 50,000 megawatts of generators, of new generation, come into that marketplace. So again, we're getting some diversity. It's primarily been wind and gas. Um, as Paula says, diversity is an important part. We all think in our industry that diversity is an important piece of maintaining a good, reliable, and affordable piece of energy. So as we continue to see that growth, we know that we're going to be challenged with some of the things that we've already been challenged with in the past. When we saw the influx of wind, we had to learn how to manage it. And we did have to make changes. We had to say, wind generators, you have to be able to ride through frequency excursions, because that's what happens in a power grid. When a large generator trips offline, we can't afford to have also all the wind turbines trip offline. And so we've had to make technical adjustments to those plants and make sure that there were requirements that they had to meet in order for us to get this abundant resource into the grid successfully and not threaten reliability. We also know that we've had to continue to look at the balancing needs that we need from other resources in that grid. And we call that ancillary services, right? At any time we're running, we've got to keep load and demand in balance. But behind all that, we also have to have other generators queued up and procured to make sure that when something does happen, whether that's a wind ramp down or whether that's the tripping of a coal plant or a gas plant, that we've got the ability to respond. And so those are the types of changes that we'll continue to see. So what have we learned from our past? We've learned that the changes can be rapid, and we expect that will continue. Not just continued growth of wind, which we do see in our forecast is continuing, but also additional solar generation at utility scale. We're going to see a lot more of that coming into our grid. We think that we're also going to see the emergence of this grid storage, whether it's at the grid level, transmission level, or whether that's at distribution level. We don't have a lot of that in ERCOT today, but we think that's going to continue to grow. So other things that we have to remember that we've learned. We've learned that transmission is essential to bringing these resources to the market. And if you think about what we did, we invested almost $7 billion in the transmission network. And Mr. Wortham knows a lot about that, I think, um, to bring all of that wind energy into the load centers. Because the load in Texas is not in West Texas, where that resource has been. Right? It is over here in Dallas and Austin and San Antonio and Houston. And so delivering that energy in has been required us to make that significant investment. Solar, unfortunately, the best solar is actually further west than those CRES lines currently run. And so we have to be prepared, I think, to be able to expect that there might be some of those similar transitions. The other thing that we've transitioned successfully is the loss of some of the other generators. We built 50,000 new generators. We also saw about, I think about 150 generators actually retire from service. And we expect that we'll continue to see some more of that. And when that occurs, often our transmission network is built around those plants. And so we can expect to have to make further investments in transmission if we see some of those traditional generators start to retire, whether they're coal, old-style gas plants, those types of resources that are challenged in this high renewable, low natural gas price environment. So other things that we see on the horizon to be growing, demand response. And again, that is something that happens down usually at a customer level, so it's not something that ERCOT is directing. But as the grid operator, as that becomes a higher percentage of capability within the marketplace, we believe that we're going to have to have some visibility into that. We're going to have to know what types of impact that could have on the reliability or on the transmission grid planning. And the evolution of distributed generation. Paula mentioned community solar. There's community solar type projects coming into the grid. We want to know how the distribution companies are seeing those located. We want them to maybe roll that information up to a transmission level so we can see the population of that out there. And again, just to help us manage and know what to expect, because that's going to look like negative load to us. 
it's going to be a change in the way power flows as those types of resources start getting located in these load centers. And I think the other thing, the two things that we recognize is with those types of changes, we need to continue to look at that ancillary service market and make sure that we can keep the types of resources in our marketplace that can respond to changes in the output from that variable generation uh, very quickly. And we also need to keep our eyes on system inertia. I mean, that's something we probably don't always hear in this particular classroom. But inertia is important, and it's something that's provided by those traditional generators in our network that is not provided by wind and solar. So as that penetration of wind and solar goes up, those inverter-based technologies, we have to make sure that we're keeping our eye on inertia. Because inertia is what acts even before those ancillary services can deploy. It is that kind of everything in motion stays in motion kind of thing for the grid. And so when there is a disturbance, we need to make sure that we've got enough spinning mass out there providing that inertia service. And so we're monitoring that and keeping our eye on it. It's not a problem yet, but it has the potential, especially during times when we have low loads but high renewable penetration. And so that's kind of where we've been on the journey as the higher level grid in terms of moving towards that future. And I think that one question that always comes out is, well, how much can you take? And I think that, sadly, I can't answer that question. That if we keep working together with our stakeholders, our regulators, and everybody else, and understanding the dynamics that are introduced in the grid from this renewable shift, then I think that you know, that number might be higher than we would have at one time believed. That's great. A lot of insights. Thank you. Yeah, great. I think a lot of my perspective I can add in are the, the social and the industrial and regional implications of what's happened. I'm from Sweetwater, I live in Sweetwater, but like the other issues we're talking about, there's been a bit of trans, uh, uh, transformation in those time frames. In the meantime, I lived in, I went to this school, uh, worked down the street at what I call the Pink Building, I worked in the, <laughs> the Capitol for a while for a couple of state senators when Twitter used to have two senators, and then uh, worked in Washington, D.C. on the Energy Policy Act and other activities as a lawyer hired by somebody who used to be at CPS was the woman who hired me to be a lawyer, so I'm at home here on the, the female-dominated <laughs> panel. Uh, and then I moved to New York City to run a rural electric cooperative in New York City. We called it ultra-high-density rural or historically rural, uh, were the phrases we used. Uh, formerly rural? Formerly, formerly known as rural, rural yeah. historically rural, yeah, sort okay. of uh, 1600s. And, yeah. and so, uh, you know, worked on uh, natural gas power plant development in New York City as well as electrical su supplies and petroleum products. Uh, came back to Sweetwater and worked on, uh, we had a major coal project proposed. Uh, our largest employer is nuclear, as a matter of fact. We have 500 workers across. I loved when the, the media would come in to interview me about wind. Then a few years later, they'd come to interview me about oil, and they got really confused when we could just mix all these <laughs> energy sectors up. And I loved to take them across the street to historic buildings where the largest employer in town was doing nuclear radiation detection. And I had about 90% of the world market and just across the street. And so there's a lot of diversity, and that's part of what's happened, is that we addressed the prison economy, the drought economy, with a whole new economy. We didn't have these opportunities uh, when I was in Sweetwater in the 80s, uh, and then came back in the 90s. There tend to be one leader from time to time in our community, and then five years later, there'd be another leader of a different institution, and there'd be nobody for two years, and three years later, there'd be another. When, when I came back and became the mayor in 07, on the same day, two or three months later, someone who used to be at the college, the Chamber of Commerce and Economic Development, came back to run the, chamber, the Economic Development Corporation. The same day, a woman who 20 years before had been at the Chamber of Commerce and moved to San Francisco and came back, was now working at the college. So suddenly we had, kind of like this panel, we suddenly had three leaders 
or four liters at one time. We never had that experience. And then people started moving back to take these high-powered jobs that we had in the wind industry and suddenly filled up every building in town that had been vacated since the 70s was filled up with a wind company. Uh, there was, seemed like there was first wind, second wind, third wind. <laughs> there, was, there was a second wind. There was third planet wind. The post office used to just give me the mail if it said wind uh, because they're like, oh, he's in wind. So I was getting the mail for General Electric, you know, small wind companies. Uh, and so it got big enough they really couldn't just give me everybody's mail when they started delivering, you know, a million dollars worth of parts to them. I asked them to deliver those down the street. <clears throat> and uh, when I went to uh, a couple of years into being the mayor, I had a group of interns, that, high school interns, and we took them to Los Angeles to the American Wind Energy meeting. And uh, we had just recruited General Electric a couple of weeks before to have their only wind operation center in the world in Sweetwater. So I went over to the GE booth, and uh, you know, being the big mayor of Sweetwater, I went over and said, you know, I'm the mayor of Sweetwater, and thought, well, they'll be laughing now. And they're like, let's get the president. Let's get the vice president. Oh, where is he? And they said, oh. They came back, and they were all disappointed. I'm sorry he left Los Angeles this morning to fly to Sweetwater. <laughs> and, and so when I was in New York City, I, I think I made the Daily News once, and we were on live on TV once. When I came back to Sweetwater, I can't even count how many dozens of, you know, the BBC, the BBC, the BBC, French one, you know, France 2, France 3, France, you know, 24, and uh, Slovenia, uh, the uh, Australian TV. It just became a regular concept, and so our interns had a lot of opportunities to do international news work and video work, and, and a, a man you'll hear next uh, used to be a commuter. He used to fly into Sweetwater once a, once a month, basically, uh, Boone Pickens, and so uh, all our interns were, if you go to various registrars, they graduated from a number of major universities, but whenever he was in town, they were all Oklahoma State University students, and they had, we'd had, literally would have flown in that day the latest uh, Oklahoma State t-shirts and fashions <laughs> so that they could be real, he liked that, and they'd make chocolate chip cookies, and he'd put them in major film projects that he would do out there that crews from Austin would come up, and, and so these sort of opportunities were just inconceivable. We had uh, new high schools that Blackwell had an $80 million tax base when they started, sort of like ERCOT with no win, and a year or two later, they had a billion-dollar tax base. So now they have a new $14 million school, and they had the old entranceway from 1923. They took that off as a demolished the old building and moved it over to the brand-new $14 million campus and put that on there. <clears throat> they, uh, you know, we had other community uh, the same way in Trent, which was one of the first major public projects, was a new school for Trent. Uh, they, uh, in 2005, they were in the old school. In 2005, they were in the new school. So at the beginning of the year, you could go to, they had some stadium clubs there at the, at the building, which meant you parked your pickup truck at the end of the, the gravel field they had, that, and, and uh, a local state official here hates uh, West Texas, was annoyed because her son had to play football on grass in Brenham. Uh, I think if you lived in Brenham, you'd want to play on grass. Well, <laughs> our communities were playing on artificial turf, and that really upset some people in the capital. But before that, they played on real gravel. And so in 2005, <laughs> you parked your truck there and you locked. And the electricity in that school was, was wired on the outside because there was no electricity when that school was built mm. to wire on the inside. But that was bad at the Capitol to some people. So, you know, Texas has come back and forth being really visionary like Krez and people like David Swinford uh, who, uh, you know, the, this is typical in a lot of states, but in Texas it's Austin, San Antonio who've been so important to us. I mean, the region is revitalized because of Austin, San Antonio, and the LCRA territory. 
but you had other people like David Swinford, who's from the Panhandle. Now he's seeing the fruits of what he worked on. He hadn't been in the legislature for years, and a decade ago when he pushed a lot of these things as the opportunity for the Panhandle was visible to people like that, it couldn't happen because the, the boundary between ERCOT and the Southwest Power Pool, which Kress has helped address. And so you had real visionary leaders, and then you had other people who just were incredibly petty and, and got in the way and found ways to, to block things. But you, so you, Trent moved from the gravel facility to a brand new school where the students were walking around with you know, laptops and Wi-Fi networks, and of course now they don't have laptops, they have tablets and everything else. Those things were incomprehensible. And the same thing at Blackwell and those sort of schools, uh, Roscoe, uh, these students, a lot of what we do with our interns and these television programs and, and film programs, there's a great German film uh, that was a reality TV that's a whole different story of uh, trying to translate a slow-talking, drawling West Texas rancher into German and dub him. That was really hard, trying to be German who could talk that slow. <laughs> but, you know, we had these real opportunities for these students, and they got to do a lot of things, and then they were really, where are you from? Trent. Where are you from? Blackwell. And a few years before, it's like, Trent, I'm Blackwell. Yeah, and they were just embarrassed where they were from. Well, they weren't going to get to go anywhere anyway. And then with when they had scholarships they could get because those were legal at the time until the people in the pink building decided West Texas was bad and they made it illegal for a private utility company to negotiate scholarship programs for students because it was wind and some people didn't like wind. And so the, the, the policies have been really unusual and interesting. Can I, can I stop you there? So sure. Can you, can you repeat what you said? Uh, that Which one? The there were scholarships, scholarships available from the wind industry right. that are you know, prohibited or forbidden or something? Yes. Or because of Texas legislative action? Because right. there's a lot of Texas legislative action trying to get more rural kids to universities. Is that right? right. That, these things conflict. And if you yeah, read the websites okay. of some of these leaders, leaders, excuse me, some of these elected people uh, in, in the capital, uh, it's, uh, it's about local control. It's about eliminate central bureaucracies. And yet you're going to enlist, well, you just put a new central bureaucracy to over supersede the federal bureaucracy that you said was evil, and now you put a state bureaucracy on top of the Department of Defense who already did their job, and, uh, and so it's those sort of things. But it, you had private utility companies at the beginning, it was real freewheeling, and so the utilities would negotiate with their school districts <laughs> to uh, locate the projects there, and they would set up uh, scholarship programs. So if you go to Blackwell, which uh, population, <laughs> It's a big city, so the population signs don't agree on the north side and the south side. So when you come in from Sweetwater, <laughs> it's 360. If you go out into the next county, it's 351. Uh, whereas Blanc Bront, 10 miles away, is 999. So I think they really don't like that next person shouldn't move there because it's not <laughs> going to be welcome. But you could, if you went there 12 years, you got a $12,000 scholarship. If you went there four years, you got a $4,000 scholarship. And they're the last school that gets to do that. Because a legislature in the midst of something where a lot of legislatures were convinced that they did something good, the people who did the law realized we had a really bad proposal, we talked to everybody how bad that was, and we did an awful one that was not as bad, just awful. And so they actually prohibited these sort of foundations to do scholarships because it was about who has grass and who has artificial turf. And West Texas shouldn't have schools anyway. I mean, that was that the attitude of some of the Again, elected officials, I won't use the word leaders yeah, because okay. they weren't and aren't. But uh, then there's other people like David Swinford, who was a conservative Republican and, and created the, a lot of the opportunities for what's going forward because he saw the potential in the panhandle. And yet his 
region wasn't able to benefit from that until about now that they're really getting the feel for what's happening. But there's just tremendous opportunities. We've seen families move up and it shakes up the social order in the community where you're supposed to live in this neighborhood, you're supposed to live in that neighborhood. <clears throat> you get a new job from when you didn't have to ask permission of the right people in town to have that job. <clears throat> and then you could just move wherever the heck you want to. And so that's been fundamental, watching students get to go to colleges that didn't used to, families getting to do for their student, for their children what they wanted to do and dreamed to do but couldn't have that opportunity. Uh, families that have moved back and generations that have moved back that were sort of my classmates and then with uh, the droughts and so forth and we've seen this in Colorado and other places what they call the prison economy and that's all we had for re uh, from the oil depression of the mid 80s up until the wind uh, impulses we really that's what we had you, you convinced the folks down the street that crime's awful crime's awful we need some more prisons they get somebody gets a prison everybody else loses and then you go back two years later Crime is worse than ever. We need some more prisons. Please, please, please. And so everybody competes again. One more community wins and everybody else loses. And we got used to that, that like, so that three or four communities have won, everybody else keeps losing. Suddenly when came, we began to realize, well, it's okay if they have a win project because we're gonna get one too. And then it became more of a ranch versus farm concept until the Roscoe project convinced people that you could put wind turbines in dirt as opposed to on limestone. Because as the farmers told me the other day, the dirt's only up this deep, then you hit the limestone again. Uh, and so then it became farm communities were benefiting too. And it, we began to pay a lot more attention to common opportunities, uh, infrastructure and so forth, rather than competition. Because we know Friday night competition from football and we've got to beat them when we beat them 52 years ago and they beat us 48 years ago and it really upset us. And so we hate them because they're four miles away and then begin to realize that didn't have to happen. And then that the infrastructure was such that we could all get wind projects. And now a lot of what we're doing is solar. A lot of us were at a ranch a few weeks ago and uh, a matriarch of the region whose husband, late husband was a state senator who created a lot of these opportunities. And we were saying, so what's going on with wind? Well, solar's really the thing. We're like, so what's happening? We all realized, wait a minute. In the old days when we used to go to the movies, this is where we came into this movie, that wind energy you talk about what we've learned, it's we realize what we learned and when, and what some of the solar developers have didn't learn. And they're coming into exactly the same things. We're talking about far west Texas instead of far north Texas. The same places that there's no transmission. So we're looking around going, well, we built all this amazing transmission. We have these highly educated landowners for energy. They're oil landowners and wind landowners. They'll be good solar landowners. And so these opportunities that we have right where we were what we call Goldilocks, in the good enough territory, because our region was good enough for wind. We're fortunate completely in our region for San Antonio and Austin, and also for the fact that there is a border between Texas and the United States that's a few miles north of us. That the, the ERCOT border forced people to stay in the good enough zone for wind. Because if, if Texas was the shape that it is on some maps, you know, in the old days in the highway department map, Panhandle wasn't on, it was on the back side. Well, that's the way, obviously, ERCOT and SVP are. But now, at that time, people would have gone straight to the high-quality wind, and the Panhandle would have never come to the Sweetwaters and Roscoe's and uh, Snyder's and those places. So we were incredibly fortunate that that happened. Now we have that infrastructure. So on the solar side, we can look to do those sort of concepts and, and build off of that and, and rebuild with those landowners. And then, as that gives time, as the new solutions are built for the far west Texas, so the Transbancus and then looking at the Western Grid border and the SBP border in the West and so forth.
Thank you. Yeah, so we'll, yeah, we'll have a chance for more comments yes. from Mark, so we'll appreciate all that input. Mara. Sure. So probably appropriate that I'm flanking this panel uh, with Paula. Paula really spoke to how you engage in renewables and the lessons they've learned from more of the non or excuse me, the non-competitive side of the market. Um, I can speak to it more from the competitive side of the market and the deregulated portion of ERCOT. But in order to really have context, I should probably give you guys a little bit of background on where I've gotten or learned these lessons. And, and that's the current shop that I'm in called MP2 Energy. So MP2, real quickly, we are a level four QSE in our, yeah, watch, your, watch yourself, I get really animated yeah, well, hands. Uh, I get, it explain the acronyms you go through, because not yeah, everyone okay, knows yeah. SPP and QSE and all that kind There's of thing. There's so. every letter in every, it means everything. So yeah. we are a level four QSE, which is a qualified scheduling entity in ERCOT. And what that means is that we have the ability to interface with Cheryl's team and bring generation into the market on behalf of generators, the generators building in Greg's market. And as a level four QSE, we manage about 1.5 gigawatts of generation in ERCOT. That's largely renewable based. So we've got a large wind farm um, for M&M Mars. We've got landfill gas. We have biomass, so like the Rio Grande Sugar uh, Growers Association, they have a seasonal burn of their, um, their sugar cane. And we've got a, a seasonal landfill, or excuse me, biomass plant. And then we have the first solar merchant facility out in West Texas. Um, it's now a 29 megawatt um, merchant facility, uh, the first merchant facility, I believe, in North America in ERCOT. So really exciting. And then we manage demand response. So that's what means level four means you can interface loads into the market. And I think we've got about 20% of Cheryl's market as well on, on the demand response side. Uh, on the other side of our shop, we do retail electricity. So when you start to assemble the pieces of MP2, we kind of look like a virtual utility minus the lines and poles because we work with generation and we have the sink or the, the retail side of the, the, of, of the transaction. And on the retail side, we work PJM ERCOT, but we serve about 1.5 gigawatts of load as well. And historically, we've done CNI loads because it's not weather sensitive. And when you look at what we do, our job is risk managers. We're not just a QSE, we're not just a rep. We do all of this because it allows us to manage risk across the entire ERCOT spectrum, all the way from source of generation to sync with load. So we're risk managers. We just so happen to participate in all areas of the market so that we can better manage risk for all of our customers across it. And because we participate in both ends of the market, we understand the value from both sides of the deal. So we've seen the solar deals happening. We've been a party on some of these solar deals, and we're understanding what are the buy-sell side of these deals looking for, what's working on the sell side or the generator side? What are they looking for? What's working on the retail side or the load side, the, the buy? And what are, they, what are they valuing in these transactions? And on the retail side, as a result of some of these learnings, we've launched programs like our partnership with SolarCity to do full retail net metering in, in the deregulated market. We've got two community solar programs, one in Houston, one in Dallas. And those are kind of first of their kind out in ERCOT where the customer's not having to enter in to the contract to purchase those three panels or their portion of the community solar share. We're buying the hedge and, and, and sleeving that hedge essentially back to the customer. And so we've played with all the, the models that work in the regulated market. And we've tried to say, OK, if, if we know these models transact and work in the regulated market or in the, the non-competitive zones where CPS and Austin have been transacting for years, how do we adapt them to work in the competitive part that has way different rules and regulations around, or maybe better said, lack of rules and regulations around how you do it. And so 
we've gotten beaten up over the past three years as we've learned these lessons and, and kind of trying to be first movers in the market here. And some of these lessons that we've learned, um, you know, they didn't turn out exactly as we expected. But the good, the good part of all of these are that we've gotten data over the past two and a half years since we really started deploying this and since uh, maybe even longer than that, you know, almost three and a half, four years ago since First Solar went merchant with their Berea facility out in West Texas, we've got data that not even ERCOT has. And quite frankly, we get data that not even CPS and Austin Energy get in terms of solar production. So when we go validate what are these assumptions we had in the market, is the value proposition we thought the customer or the, the buyer and the low, or excuse me, and the generator or the seller had, are they really showing up like we thought? And so the data is telling us whether or not those assumptions have been validated. And now two and a half years worth of data are letting us know, okay, was the first year where we validated our assumptions, was that a fluke year because we haven't had much volatility? Or are we seeing these patterns continue? And so after two and a half, three years of these battle wounds, what can we kind of inconclusively, conclusively say right now? <laughs> um, we've learned a couple lessons. First, positive side of things. We have learned that solar can compete in a low gas environment. And it can compete in a low gas environment in, in the deep. By low gas, you mean low price gas. Yes, low right. price, yeah. yeah, 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 not low supply. Low price <laughs> gas, um, oops, low price gas. And what that means is that solar's definitely not competing on an energy only basis. If I go look at what is the cost, or what is the market, market clearing at an ERCOT right now, just energy only, it will not support a solar developer going out and building a plant. I mean, we've seen very, very little volatility, prices staying stagnant, kind of in the low 30s, even when there's expected you know, low resources in SCED. So no volatility. So we're not going to compete on energy only. The way solar is competing today is on a different value stream. So all of a sudden, solar brings value into the market that is less liquid because I'm not going out to the market and trading and I have a, a mark, I have a, I have a bid ask that's telling me I can go buy or, or sell this at this price. I'm going into a market where the value is subjective, where the value is outside of the liquidity of the market and it's up to the customer or the load or the, or the generator to dictate what some of these other value streams are. So I'll, I will get back to that in a second, I promise. So solar can compete. The other thing that we've learned is that solar is super well correlated with risk in the market. Not gonna say with necessarily, well, let me put it a different way. Solar is really well correlated with uh, the high pricing events that we're seeing and, and kind of the, the peak hours of the market. You're going to have your winter peaks where solar might not show up when it's you know, early in the morning. But when we're looking at when we've seen scarcity pricing or purely just volatility priced into the market, even if it doesn't show up in the market, if the day ahead of market is saying our ending 1700 is going to have volatility, there's a potential that, hey, that could be a 4C for CP event, which is a four coincident peak event or a peak moment on the grid. High prices. Is yeah, what it means. really, really high prices. <laughs> yeah. um, so if, if we know that that's going to show up, all of a sudden that's correlated to when solar shows up because our grid or our market, our market is gas index, but it's also a weather sensitive market. What's dictating when, when this load or when these four CP or peak events occur is a resi AC load. We are a resi driven market and you are firing up your resi AC when the sun is shining. And so there is this high correlation. Now, the same value. I'm just going to translate. Resi, resi is residential. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I should have my own translator and subtitle. I get so excited about yeah. this stuff sometimes, you know? The sun's out. It gets hot with your Yeah. Michael, go Michael's going yeah. on tour yeah. with me, and he's going to be my translator yeah. from now on. 
Yeah, I'm yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I should have like a, a screen up here too. Yeah. It's so exciting though, I can't yeah. stop. So, res, or so, not resi, so we are an AC driven market. You fire it up when the sun's out. And so there's a good chance that if you're firing up your AC that the solar on the rooftop is producing. And so the fact that solar is variable kind of is okay because the variability should be a variability I see with the grid as well. So solar as a risk management tool, it's good. It's not perfect because you don't have 100% coincident peak, but you've got enough of those pricing incidents and pricing events and the shape of solar that I'm getting the shape value. I'm pricing the highest, most expensive hours into the market of what I'm offsetting. And not just on energy, I'm doing it on the ancillary services. Everything in ERCOT has a shape to it. The pricing isn't flat. You might buy blocks of power, but pricing is more, or excuse me, power is more expensive to buy at five o'clock on an August afternoon than it is at 11 a.m. on an August day. And so as a result, same sh production shape I see on solar is a lot of times the same pricing curve I see. So second lesson was solar is really well correlated. It's a good risk management tool. Doesn't necessarily mean that translates directly to, to my peers in the non-competitive market. They don't necessarily have those same pricing signals that I see. So where I can extract value in the DREG market isn't necessarily the same value stream that our peers in, in more regulated markets can. So just want to clarify, you, we're not necessarily apples to apples. Um, third lesson is because it's value-based, it changes our market. So I, we were joking with the CPS gang. I knew them from my, my, my career before MP2 because I was at Sun Edison and before Sun Edison, I was with Arizona Public Service. Like, it's like a tragedy of solar stories right there. <laughs> and then I, I left all of them before they hit that tragic period. And then before Sun Edison, or excuse me, before APS was with a Houston-based company called Standard Renewable Energy back in late 2000s that was doing kind of distributed energy um, management for, for customers. And what I learned through all of those careers was that regulatory-driven markets stink as a de developer. It, you get a boom-bust cycle, and I'm sorry, that's a very opinionated statement, but a compliance-driven market is tough as a entity forced to take that because all of a sudden you're taking me out of my procurement cycle. Like, I might not need what you're forcing me to take, but because compliance says I have to, I will take that. I will, I will have to purchase that generation. And I'm, I'm now gonna be capacity long, and what that does is it changes what my procurement needs are 10, 15, 20 years down the road from now. So you force this procurement up into the front and you kind of shoot yourself on the backside. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of regulated markets are like, They've kind of dried up. There's no more capacity available. You can't get more contracts because every utility there is contracted up to their eyeballs in capacity. And so because you go into the DREG space, it's value-based, we got a long-term market opportunity. All of a sudden, I'm going to transact with you when it makes economic sense. And as a capitalist, that's, that's a market that has a lot of future opportunity. And what it also means is that it drives innovation. So if all of a sudden my vanilla solar system is not getting the price signals that I need or want, I have other ways that I can do that. Maybe, heck, let me throw a battery on there. Let me look at um, interfacing it maybe with a little bit of thermal in there to, to, to firm up my shape. You know, there's more innovation I can do to increase that value. And then the last piece on the value, the wholesale side, when you're talking about value or the, the, the sell side, the generator side, the, the market there is, is more liquid. It's, 
it's more cut and dry as to what the value is wholesale. You've got an energy-only market. You can price that shape and say, which this is kind of a, a good benchmark for everybody. Right now, if I went and priced the solar curve against the forward curves in ERCOT, which means if I take the expected solar production over the next 10 years, if I forecast that out, and were to go try to buy that exact same thing in the market today, it's, I'm probably going to buy that for about $36. And that's if I buy 10 years. That's if I'm per only, megawatt or so. Per, yeah, yeah, yeah. So t thank you. Yeah. Per, it's $36 per unit of everything I'm buying. <laughs> And to give you some relative perspective, three years ago when I came in, it was about equal to $47. So the market has come off that much. So trying to transact on just that number alone is going to be really hard. And that's in the wholesale space. And that's why you're not seeing many wholesale things happen. When you take the transaction to the retail side, and all of a sudden I'm talking about the load or the other side of where that generation sinks, my market is less liquid because now it's not just energy only. It's everything delivered. So it's my TDSP charges. All of a sudden, I'm offsetting my charges maybe from Encore or Centerpoint, who hopefully aren't in the room, because they're probably not thrilled about that. Um, it's also offsetting you know, my ancillary service charges. It's offsetting my basis charge, which probably means nothing to anybody in this room. But that's a super, super difficult thing for a customer to ever get price assurance on. Like, you give a customer price assurance by hedging their power and locking in a rate. If I try to go hedge in basis, I can only do it like two years out. So customers who do solar for 10 years, it's like, oh, I can only do, I can do everything and give you a fixed price for a while, but this one component I'm struggling with because I can only go really two years at a time. And so because all of a sudden when I go behind the meter, I'm avoiding the ambiguity of all of those things. I'm avoiding the TDSP cost that might increase I don't know how much over the next 20 years. It, it's a subjective valuation. I think as a consumer, maybe my TDSP charges are going to increase 5% a year. Maybe they're going to increase 10% a year. It all of a sudden starts describing a subjective value onto all these other things and all these other benefits you get behind the meter. And so as a result of being subjective, I'm now competing at a different price point. I'm not trying to compete at $37. I'm maybe competing at 50 because customer assigns a lot of value to not having to worry about TDSP costs for the next 10 years. So moral of the story is value base, um, wholesale, retail have different liquidities, different values, because some are more objective and some are more subjective. OK, last three points, and then I'm done. Wait, well, OK. Because we got to leave some okay. time Q&A. Okay, go. Fast? Yes. <laughs> or can you save it for later? Yes. Or do you need Term, contract price, and customer education. OK, well done. Thank Challenges. You. So uh, Paula was the award for shortest remarks, which means she yeah, gets that first yes. question. <laughs> so uh, the great, great comments and great insights all the way around. <clears throat> renewables can't compete; they are competitive. And this is important because renewables have this tag that they require the the hand of government to succeed. And there are a lot of subsidies for renewables that are important. But it turns out they thrive in competitive markets as well. So striking the right balance, I think, is important. You you mentioned natural gas in the '70s, and and you didn't say the name, but the the name Oscar Wyatt might mean something to a lot of people. If you, if you look at the rise of capacity in ERCOT over the last few years, it's been wind and gas. And looking forward, it'll be wind, gas, and solar. Mm -hmm. And gas is important, but the rise of gas makes a lot of people really nervous because they remember the 1970s, which is Oscar Wilde broke contracts or asked for more money or couldn't deliver the gas. There were firm delivery contracts, and they were, they were broken. So a lot of people feel like they've been burned by gas before and won't be burned again. And this raises the question of diversification. So this diversification is really important. You would do it for your financial portfolio. You would do it um, for your foods. You would do it for all sorts of things, right? Absolutely. So, but it's not just 
gas and wind and solar. Can you talk a little bit more about the means? Because there's also different types of wind and different places for solar and that kind of thing. There's diversification of contracts and financial models. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means to the utility? Um, yeah, you know, I think um, I think it's right that uh, we historically are concerned about the volatility of uh, gas because of its historical performance. But the the, the difference, um, both on the renewable side for us and on the the gas side, is that the whole picture on a global basis is is so different. So, shale gas. I think changes the, the dynamic around the, the, the gas market and the way that you can get you a mean supply. like the vol you expect the volatility to be lower now? Is that what you mean? Or I expect the volatility to be okay. lower and mm -hmm. not drive the extremes that, that we've had before. Now the thing about being in this industry, there's nothing there's nothing straightforward. We do have a ton of acronyms and everything <laughs> is diff difficult. Um, so so the supply is rich not just globally, but in, in the US. So I think that's gonna change the market. The way that shale gas is mined is very different. So before you could get, when, when you had a supply, you can look at that, that reserve and potentially see it have a life that extended and it was, very, it was a very predictable curve. Shale gas kind of produces high and drops quickly. But even at that, the supply is rich. So, so it does change the market and it does make Gas um, more attractive than I think it was when, definitely in the in the Watts uh, the Wyatt days. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know there's you know people are excited because gas has less emissions than coal, but it has tremendously you know more emissions than you would on a renewable and even even nuclear from from that standpoint. So um, you, you still have to keep looking at all the nuances around the different supply components. Um, even relative to wind, we are very, very, very pleased with the wind source um, in West Texas. But we've been able to diversify wind, and we have wind units down on the coast mm -hmm. that blow differently than, than they do um, in middle and West Texas. So we are constantly diversifying source based upon region, based upon you know, who's owning. And, and, and it's, not, it's not easy, but it's, it's really important to be very, very well educated and just think about different ways to get your, your product. And the, the last point I'll say about that is recently, so, so energy is funny because it's a, you know, you've got, you've got supply companies that are, you know, are like Valero now that replaced the, the, the Lavaca issue that we had and, and they're a wonderful company and, and, and uh, Tesoro down in San Antonio. But you know, from, from that standpoint, that business is different. But we have a, a gentleman who's very, very knowledgeable, and he's like, you know, the utility should just own the reserves, and that's how you really, you really kind of manage your risk. Because if you can own the supply, then you can know that you have it for your entity. It's a physical hedge, right? Yeah. A physical yeah. hedge. Yeah. However, the utility business to actually take those reserves out of the ground and own it is a very different business than running a utility. And then you take on <coughs> operational risk. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and when you own it, and, and, and particularly if you have shale gas components, that's not the business. You actually introduce new volatility mm -hmm. into your business model. So um, I only tell you that to complicate your lives because that's, how <laughs> that's the misery that we live in is that there's nothing straightforward, but it is about um, leveraging everything you can um, all the way through. And I think, so I like this idea of diversification and, and natural gas is really important because as we have more wind and solar, and Cheryl mentioned concerns about rotational inertia. Gas is a great way to prop that up. Um, but there's this love-hate relationship between gas and renewables. 
when gas was 13 bucks per million BTU, which it was in 2008, the wind boom really took off. And then gas has collapsed, but wind has kept going because now you can more cheaply build the gas to back up the wind. So there's some interesting mm -hmm. dynamics there. Um, and I, I think that's worth keeping in mind. And then the diversity of coastal wind versus panhandle wind, that's all really important. Um, Cheryl, so you, you talked about different things that happen in the market design and renewables tend to be pretty compatible with these competitive markets. But there were issues when renewables came in. It was in 2008, there were rotating brownouts in the state. There were challenges when wind forecasting hadn't gone as well. We had several years in a row where 10% of the year wind prices were negative or you had to be, uh, you'd pay people to take the power. And since then, most of the problems have been settled down. And there have been several things that happened. We went to a nodal market, a new market design at ERCOT. Um, we got more transmission lines built, the $7 billion of lines built. And wind forecasting has gotten better. Can you talk a little more about like, those changes? Like, I, I assume like, we're not done with changes. There's more market designs. You mentioned more ancestor. So um, it was hard. We made mistakes, but then we've learned. But now we've got solar coming along. So do you see this combination of infrastructure, better science, and better market design as the path going forward? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So we do still see negative pricing, right? Wind still blows at night, air conditioners don't run as hard, lights don't work, you know, all those things don't happen. So we do still see negative prices. But instead of it just being in West Texas, where we used to see all this negative pricing, and we actually had to curtail wind, and that's something that the ERCOT marketplace did right, right? Is we said we sometimes are gonna have to curtail wind not everybody learned that from us, um, but that's an important feature that when you don't have the ability to move it, you have to curtail it. Uh, so we do see in, an increase in overall system negative pricing, which has been an interesting thing, but it's not a reliability issue, yeah, right? We know how to manage it. We can have the right types of resources come offline. We can have that wind come offline. It makes it difficult for some of our other types of resources. I mean, other people get angry because they're making less money. That's right. But the because, grid doesn't go dark. You know, yeah. Paula and I, in my former job and in her current, we owned a nuclear plant. Well, you don't just turn a nuclear plant off <laughs> yeah. overnight, right? It, no. It's not built that way. It's not designed that way. And we really do appreciate it when it's there in the peak of the afternoon. So figuring out the right ways to make sure that we accurately price those ancillary services mm -hmm. is going to be something that we need to look at. So as Maura mentioned, you know, that, that's another part of the cost of getting energy delivered. But it's also making sure that we have the right types of ancillary services that get people to make the right types of investments. And so that means like backup power, spinning reserve, non-spinning reserve, that's what ancillary services mean. Right. That's these yeah. other values from the grid beyond just the electricity right. itself. Yeah. So on the forecasting side, you know, ERCOT took a view that, you know, there needs to be one common forecast. We don't need everybody doing their own forecasting. That's not going to be a good way to really get a good prediction of what we are going to be dealing with over the course of the day. So that's something that we had to change on forecasting is there's a forecast that comes out and we use that to help set up what we expect for the day and delivering our forward forecast for total load, but also on what wind is expected to do, because that lets other participants know how they might want to use the rest of their portfolio. How do I want to bid my, my gas plants, my coal plants, my nuclear plants based on that wind? Because wind has become a big driver of the strategies that everybody uses in setting up their day. So their plan for the day, their commercial operating plan for the day is greatly affected by that forecast. Um, forecasting has gotten more and more accurate. I would say we're probably in about a 6% range of accuracy yeah. on our average forecast it's for wind. 60%? Six. Six. No, six, six. But you know, there were times when it was double digits. And that's a really okay. important thing because, again, we get better outcomes when we see a predictable path of what we expect to happen. It lets people know how to hedge longer term, shorter term. We are using a seven-day forecast window now. Again, people can make better decisions when they have a longer forecast window. So yeah, forecasting is an absolute key thing and getting that good 
ERCOT wide solar picture is going to be another important piece. And solar, of that. I mean, we know solar doesn't work at night, so some of the forecasting of solar is easier, but mm -hmm. some of the solar is trickier with the inter hour variations. And I know you're getting real data yeah. in the computer. It can ramp very quick, yeah. right? Kind of like a duck or a dead armadillo. Yeah, yeah exactly. Goes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. The duck curve got one we call the dead armadillo curve in Texas. So, the, um, so the, you'd raise this question like, how much renewable can you take? And the answer is we don't know. But GE put out a report about eight or nine years ago that basically established that maybe 20% is the limit of wind we can take. And GE said, you should buy GE wind turbines, but because you can only have 20% GE wind, you should buy GE gas turbines to back them up and then hire GE energy services to consult for you. And that was the triple bottom line, according to them. And so, but this, we proved it many times that 20% is not the limit. You can take more at certain times right. because of system-wide investments in lines, new market design, better forecasting, that kind of thing. As we keep evolving, probably we can take right. more, but we don't know the limit. Right. Might yeah. come down to how much we're willing to pay, I guess, for storage. Well, some of it is, of right? How much yeah. are we willing to invest in storage? And those are just going to be, you know, that's just the, the evolution of technology, right? Yeah. The yeah. same as we've seen yeah. in wind and solar. Those prices have come down significantly. And so the evolution of what is going to be the price of storage, what are going to be some of those other prices, and do they have the same potential to decline yeah. over 60% over the next you know, that, five or 10 years? That could be a game changer. And people have been saying that the, a better battery is a game changer, and they've been saying that for 160 years, but this is the year. Yeah. I feel it's good. We have a few people have questions. I don't There's know if Samsung's there. feeling that way Yes, right Samsung's now. not feeling good. I'm on every plane now, like, put away your Samsung. There's a microphone there. If we got some people questions, we got time for a few questions. Yeah, yes, sir. Hi there, thank you. So my, my sense is that the people outside the energy industry, what, what they find so attractive about renewable energy is understood in the context of climate change, which has been completely yeah. absent from, from everyone's presentation. And so it's nice to hear, and it's energizing to hear, no pun intended, that, that renewables are, are in fact competitive, but from the new sort of environmentalist activist point of view, that transition is still far, 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 far too slow. And so I wonder if, if I could hear just an answer from, from you all about the factors in addition to what you've talked about that limit the growth of, of renewables in the context of climate change, not just in the context of, of the industry itself. This is a good point, and we haven't said that, but um, the decarbonization of the United States is underway, it's a success story. The decarbonization of Texas is underway, that's a success story. And that's happening because of natural gas displacing coal and renewables displacing natural gas. You've got like a, a two-front battle going on, and that's been a big difference. And also reduces water and has less other air pollutants, so there's some environmental advantages. Any comments on that? I know it's important to San Antonio, and that's come up. But. The, the one thing I would say is, um, it, it, again, another complicated topic. I mean, I didn't, um, I, I didn't talk about it, but... Um, so we are very, very much um, interested in reducing emissions. The diversification strategy still focuses on that. And we, because we have a diversified por portfolio, not just renewables, renewables, again, can't do it enough, partic uh, particularly because the capacity factors and the ability for it to produce all of the time can't substitute base load generation. However, with having a diversification, including nuclear, um, and all the things that we've been able to do over the years, we are very close to meeting the EPA regulations. And we continue to believe that, again, energy storage will help us contribute and make sure that we are doing what we need to do um, from that standpoint. I think the real challenge is that globally, there are other things afoot where, where other industrial um, growing um, countries are having to use a lot more carbon-based power and are, you, you have a dichotomy. You have some that are going to rev up coal, particularly, 
and, and nuclear maybe not because of the cost, but they're going to rev up coal so they can stay industrially able to do that. But you're going to have some countries, even like Africa um, and some South American countries, that will skip coal and go straight mm -hmm. to renewables. But it's a really complex um, thing, and I think everybody's doing a part here, but it, it is a big global issue on how to, how to do that. And now you'll find more energy companies focused on policy. The problem is there's no movement on policy. Um, yeah. globally. Policy seems frozen, yeah. yeah. Any other comments on this? I was going to say, yeah. to add to that, I totally agree on the base load and the policy challenges. The other issue there is that we have a fundamental business model challenge. We could probably load up a gigawatt plus of load for you tomorrow that would transact on solar if the solar, if the, the product solar was bringing to the table was more in line with how um, traditional power is consumed. So not asking you guys to go to the period of a one-year contract term, but 20-year contract terms, not going to happen. There is not enough credit in the market to facilitate that, especially when you're talking about taking it to load. So we need to find a happy medium where the business model world and the, the solar, and not, it's not just solar, it's finance. Finance innovation comes where they're lowering the term, they're changing the delivery point so that you're not necessarily asking loads to take it at a node, you're, you're moving it to a more liquid trading point. And I, I think that will hands down be a massive game changer in the market. We've got to improve finance. And I would say put a price on carbon. That's what you want yeah. to speak yeah. to. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, that was going to be here. my yeah. question, was ask you to talk about the possibility mm -hmm. of a federal carbon tax as a market signal. Oh, wow. So uh, maybe maybe I'll take this one real oh, quick. Cause cause we're gonna have a great comment. Um, we What's the possibility? Yeah. Very low. But what's the, what's the philosophical purpose of it? Very high. Like we should do some sort of price signals on carbon. That would, we're a market-based economy. Using market signals makes sense. Put a price on pollution, the pollution goes down, we should do the same thing with carbon. There are a lot of rumors in DC, and there are people in the room smarter about this than I am, that there is some grand bargain looming where Republicans want corporate tax reform, Democrats want a carbon tax, they might <laughs> negotiate around this. And I think if we look towards a Clinton-Ryan government, that might be possible. If it's a Trump government, I don't think we can predict very easily what will happen. <laughs> I will say that ExxonMobil, the last six months has been actively lobbying for a carbon tax, the winds have changed. So I think there's some likelihood it will happen in the next governing structure, depending on the outcome and that kind of thing. More, more likely than what happened under Obama. Obama tried, didn't, was not successful. But I think there'll be a price in the next four years or so. Um, question over here. There's the climate change lobby as well. They're centered in Texas, I think. They have a satellite in spring. But anyways, my name is Henry Price. As emerging alternative energy companies, how do you guys feel that the U.S. has been pulled out of the U.N. Paris Agreement? The, how do we feel about the U.S. being pulled out? Well, it hasn't been pulled out yet, right? So mm. is that what you mean? Oh, so, Kevin Brady's working on it. Oh, well, okay. we tend to be Texas-focused. I don't have any comments. Bra Brady's from California rep, is that right? So, but I don't know any comments about this. Does, does this matter for your world? It, so most of, most, when you look at how policy impacts our world, Looming policy and looming change, just the chatter impacts pricing and you see it in the forward curves. So whether or not something it's like a risk, right? Yeah. It, it puts risk into the it market. It is. Yeah. And so whether or not something actually happens, the risk is already there in the market and it shows up either as a small risk or a big risk. And so I'm seeing it. I'm also going back to Michael's. I'm a market based, we're a market. And so whether the signals are there, and yeah. when the signals change, the pricing will change and the market dynamics will change. And, and I would suggest the industry in general is more concerned about uncertainty than a high price. Yeah. So if you say the price is high, they'll, they'll moan, but they're like, okay, but at least it's certain. Uncertainty is actually more damaging. Okay. Look, climate change, you know, what we look at in the region is that uh, the way it's going to work is we know that solar is great and wind is great for the planet. And we want to do, we're doing everything we can to move it forward. 
if you hear me on the BBC on, on French TV, I'm talking about green and saving water and saving energy and saving emissions. If I want to get a single wind turbine built, you don't use those words in Texas. People down the street who, who take away scholarships because of artificial turf versus grass are going to shut the industry down if you start jumping up and down and Sweetwater's for climate change reform. You just talk about it's green. It means it's got Washingtons and Benjamins and it makes money for people, <laughs> so it's green. We know what it does, and we all work together to make it happen. And the, the utilities know, the grid knows, we know the values of it. If we make that the big push, we're done. And, and so from a regional standpoint and having to deal with those legislators and communities, you know, we know when to talk about those issues and when to move forward those issues by talking about other, call it energy security, don't call it green energy. We've been shut down at various times because one year they didn't like renewable, the next year they didn't like green. You know, what word they didn't like. Let's just move forward what we know so is you, good. I mean, you were sort of at the center of this world where you had rural Republicans teaming up with urban Democrats to promote some of these investments right. because it was good for climate change or environmental goals, but also good for rural economic development, right? So Total it, revitalization. So there's a lot of language around this. you got to yes. get this right. Yeah. Right. Yes, ma'am. Well, and that, that's a great segue and leeway in what I was going to ask. And, and Mara, my first question is to you. Uh, I know we've been talking more like in a global or, you know, a statewide, but, you know, I come back in, I work uh, with Purdue and m University now uh, and still in economic development that I've always been in and involved in, you know, energy, whether it's Klein Shell, where I worked with Greg, uh, or in the Eagleford Shell area where I am. Uh, but the one thing that has been an impact are the, you know, the solar farms. And they're coming into the, to the rural areas. Uh, and I worked very closely uh, with some developers that came into the Uvalde County area uh, a couple of years ago. And, you know, they're, you know, important thing, you know, they're contractors with uh, CPS, you know, there's all the Alamos, you know, the ABC Alamos, and, you know, getting them up and running. However, they now have a new owner. And that kind of with all of the, you know, beginning, uh, you know, we're doing initiatives, you know, we're doing rebates, you know, we're doing all these things uh, to bring this, you know, to the area. And while there was a few construction jobs, you know, of course they're moving on and there's only going to be just a couple of guys that are going to be doing the uh, actual, you know, technical work and, and maintenance on the project. But then going into, in which we have not we're, had issues. We're about other, out of time, so okay, get really quick. question, yeah. I th my thing is, is like the marketing to the rural areas. I know that uh, right now Vernon, you know, is a real on an iffy, you know, we don't, if you're going to sell it to a foreign country, can we keep you from doing that? The developers say no. You know, our market is our market. Good comment, yeah. And, and, I'm, comment looking, and I'm looking we're, at it from a, like look, a public relations or information. We should absolutely be having generators and everybody bringing these rural communities cheaper cost power to attract new business, to attract jobs to the area, to attract manufacturing. CPS's RFP was a great model yes. of what OCI did. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways to replicate what CPS did and leverage power as a big expense for EcoDev. What we've so, seen on the, the, the Washington side where there was, a, oh, it's a Chinese product, it's a German product. It's, mm -hmm. That product is sitting in Ranger or Roscoe for the next 50 years. There's a new school in Roscoe for generations. There's a new school in Trent and Highland and Blackwell and Hermley and Snyder. The turbines aren't going anywhere. All those workers are still there and people in Sweetwater even poo-pooed like one guy poo-pooed me that uh, it's just a bunch of temporary construction jobs. For, for a decade, we had 600 construction jobs because those projects were all around. In this case, they'll be around western Texas, and they'll be around northern Texas and eastern New Mexico. And so the project is there wherever somebody in Sydney 
or Beijing or Dusseldorf gets money for owning it, the people that go to school in Roscoe don't know where Dusseldorf is. They know they've got new schools and new opportunities and their families have better jobs for generations that they weren't going to have. In the 1930s, we had Rural Electrification yes. Act, which uh, sent money and electricity to the rural areas from the cities. Now we have the reverse, which is the energy flows from rural to urban, yeah. but the money mm -hmm. still flows from urban mm -hmm. to rural, which is great. Mm -hmm. We have to stop there. Great panel. Thank Please join you. me in thanking Very them nice. for this.